0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachib, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, look, the nutrition space can get very heated very quickly. Just scroll through social media, and you'll find countless influencers on their soapbox about what we should and should not be eating. And there is so much conflicting information. Well, Maya Feller is straight up done with all the shaming. There is no one size fits all approach to eating. In fact, she says we should all celebrate the diverse, nourishing, flavorful dishes that come across the globe and focus on adding instead of subtracting and eliminating things from our diet. Maya is a registered dietitian known for providing education from an anti-bias, patient-centered, culturally sensitive approach. And in this episode, she cuts through the BS nutrition advice that you probably hear constantly and shares how to make your meals feel good for both your mind and body. Always a pleasure to have Maya on the show. Maya, welcome. So great to have you back. Jason,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Always a pleasure. Really excited about your book. And and before we jump into that, you know, maybe start by giving a little bit of background, um, which I I find to be fascinating. We really haven't talked about on the show, even though you have been on a a few times. You know, talk about your background, your your family, your travels, your unique upbringing, because I think It's going to get to the why of the work you do and this fantastic book. So let's start there. Who is Maya?
1: (laughs) I love that question. And I appreciate that you asked that question. Um, I would say in my personal life and like in my close circle of friends and family, we always talk so much about how my formative years and upbringing have really informed how I think about food, how I think about nutrition, how I think about equity, how I think about showing up in public and private spaces. So I appreciate being asked.
0: Mike, there's almost only so much we could talk about blood sugar and kale and celery and we're gonna get to all that. But like we I wanna get to the why here first.
1: So yeah, so I am born of, you know, Afro-Caribbean parents. So I'm first generation in this country and my biological parents are from Trinidad and Tobago and Haiti. So both English speaking and Creole speaking. Um, If I think about my biological parents, what's really interesting is my dad is this Incredible academic. He's actually an ethnomusicologist, um, which of course it makes sense, right? Ethnomusicology. He's thinking about ethnicity, music, and culture, all the intersectionality of it makes sense, right? I'm an intersectional person myself. Um, and so he actually grew up in Haiti during the Duvalier regime. So, mm. yeah, exactly. Off so, the doc. Papa Doc, there's a lot of you know, trauma there. And listen, Haiti was the first Caribbean island to really say, listen, we're not going to do this to the colonizers. And they've paid the price ever since. Um, so that was how my dad grew up. And he actually came to the US and uh, st- studied music here and went on to become this pretty incredible academic. Um, and he's I mean he is a musical genius um and he also has the biggest heart ever so you see like where I'm coming from um and then my biological mother um came from Trinidad and came from a family also of people who were really interested in politics my biological mother's dad so my grandfather was involved in labor and with, worked with the parliament quite a bit out in Trinidad and Tobago, um, and so she came to the U.S. and studied sociology, and then also went on to really become quite well respected in women and gender studies. Um, so this is those were the cells that formed me. <laughs> um, and my parents were together until I was five, when they divorced, and then my biological mother. Um, at the time you couldn't get married, now people who are queer can, but partnered up with my mom who is uh, white, or was, I should say rather, um, because she's since passed away and my book is actually dedicated to her, but um, partnered up with my mom who is a white American woman. So I came from this incredible Afro-Caribbean background and was now being raised by two women, both of whom are incredibly radical, um, forward-thinking, and then I've got this, you know, radical father who's still very much in the picture, and that is, like, little Maya.
0: And what year, and just to give people perspective, I think, you know, in the year 2023, okay, not a big deal, but...
1: (laughs) Jason, so we're talking about like the 80s when it was super different world. Also, you have to remember, like in the Caribbean, um, being gay is a crime, right? So it is punishable by law. So we're talking about, you know, a person coming from a place where not only is their morality attached to someone's sexual preference, right? It's actually breaking the law. And then here in the U.S., gay families were just not recognized. And I did have many friends growing up who thought, oh my goodness, you're raised by two women, like that's so strange. And they didn't wanna come over to my house and their parents passed judgment on our family simply based on that family structure. And then also the fact that it was an Afro-Caribbean woman and a white woman at the time. So you have, you know, sexuality, right? And then you also have this kind of social construct of race, and then you add culture and heritage to it. Um, That really laid the groundwork for me being a very thoughtful human being.
0: And this was in Cambridge too, right? Like this was nothing against, you know, nothing against Greenwich, Connecticut, but I'll paint the paint. This wasn't exactly like Stepford Wife country, no. you know, going no. back to that, like, you know, the famous Stepford, Stepford Wives movie and that, you know, the stereotypes. That wasn't that. No, no. This was Cambridge, Cameron, very progressive.
1: Super progressive. I mean, Harvard's around the corner. You know, you've got, like, all of these incredible academic people coming from all over the world, very forward thinking. You know, I, I grew up going to marches and rallies for gender and women's studies. Like, it was a really exciting time the women that showed up around my table as i was growing up it was like you know audrey lord and bell hooks and sonia sanchez and angela davis like these people were the people that were my mom's you know colleagues and collaborators and so i grew up being acutely aware that yes my family was completely different but I also grew up in this space where there were these fierce women warriors who put justice at the forefront and thought a lot about equity and always taught me to just stand in my truth and be who I was unapologetically. I love it. Yeah, right?
0: <laughs> and so what, at what point did you decide, or maybe not decide, think about pursuing a career in nutrition?
1: Oh, that was I had to be years later. So when I was younger, I was it's so funny, Jason, I was very interested in Disney um, and all the things. And, you know, my radical moms were like, no, no, <laughs> you're going to read the village voice. Uh, <laughs> that's for those of you who remember that. Uh, and I really wanted to be an actress, like a TV Glossy, glossy actress. And You
0: wanted to be an influencer, just like every kid, every Gen Z kid right now. You wanted to be an influencer.
1: Exactly. Um, and so I actually went to school for theater, but of course I went for experimental theater because of my background, right? So like I stepped in, but like not all the way in. Um and then I had a very kind of different early like you know, in my 20s life, I was doing experimental theater in the East Village, rolling around on the floor, covered in mud, showing up on corners, doing installations. You know, it was, um, that's what I was doing. And then at some point I was like, oh, this is really hard to like have a sustainable, like consistent income and also just like kind of sustainable lifestyle. So I thought I'd go back to school and that was, had to be 2007 or eight, Right. And it was really when I was training for the Boston Marathon. And it's so funny every time I tell this story because it's like so basic. Right. I'm running and I'm going, man, I'm really hungry. It's like mile 16. And I'm like, what happened to breakfast? And then I thought, all right, I better Google like food for runners, nutrition for runners. And then I realized, oh, this is something you can study. Um, and I remember bringing it up to my parents and my dad saying to me at the time, well, you're going to go for the terminal degree, right? <laughs> and I was like, "Papi, I don't know about that, but let's see. So um, I did go back and that's kind of how I ended up in nutrition. It was really just from running and out of necessity to like really fuel my runs.
0: And so it's been... Was it 14? When did you, so you went and pursued your degree. So it's been over a decade. And so from your perspective, you know, in in some ways, I'll I'll tell you how I feel in some ways, you know, having been with, you know, founded my middle green over a decade ago, in some ways we've come so far. And then sometimes I look at the news and I say, wow, we've made zero progress. We're going backwards. I'm curious from your perspective, how, how do you feel? in terms of the general state of health here in America?
1: Oh, man. Um, Do we have time for a forum? And can we bring other people in so that we can roundtable and workshop and do the do? Um, So, you know, what I would say is the state of this country in terms of health, we're in crisis. We're absolutely in crisis. There's no conversation On really any level that would disagree. Um, We have incredibly high rates of non communicable conditions. We have places, we, we are a wealthy country, yet we have people who are starving. We don't have clean water. We have unsafe school systems. I mean, like I could go on and on and on and bridge the gap between you know mental health, physical health, emotional health, access to food, safe housing, gainful education, employment. And I feel like we're not in a great place. I feel like a lot of burden falls on communities that are incredibly marginalized. Um, I feel like systems and structures are set up for people to stay within a cycle that perpetuates sickness. And I think, you know, as a provider who works with individuals and also talks to the public, I'm always thinking what are the ways that I can help people work within systems that are inherently broken? And then what are the ways that I can also impact change to help reorganize, dismantle, restructure those broken systems?
0: You know, it's so interesting. And, and I've been thinking about this one a lot lately. And, and I don't know how I don't know if I have a good answer. And and just, just to summarize, you know, if you look at obesity is north of 40% here in America, and hear you loud and clear that marginalized communities are disproportionately affected. But if you, so, so disproportionately affected, but you look at the 40%, the marginalized marginalized communities are a small portion of the 40%. And if I look at, okay, you know, 40%, like what are the things that go wrong here? Lack of information, lack of access, you can't find it. So one, I don't know. I don't, I'm not educated to make better decisions. Two, if I am educated or maybe I'm not, it's access. Like, can I, you know, the, the famous line from, the gorilla gardener, Ron Finley. Uh, I have to drive 45 minutes if I want to get an organic tomato, so that's an access problem. And then resources, financial resources, I can't afford this. And so those three issues, marginalized community, I don't have, the like th- those are very real. But then I look at like the other big part of the bucket and th- I started to first think about this anecdotally, where I know a lot of people, and I'm sure you do too, who are highly educated, have access, have resources, and they're buying cheetos and so i'm just like whoa if i'm trying to like think about all that's wrong here there's there's a lot and it's come to a head for me on a personal level because i have two young girls i know you have kids and something that's been in the news recently is you know as i mentioned obesity 40 percent of americans are obese now 20 percent of kids are obese and the first guidance on childhood childhood obesity in 15 years was released by the American Academy of Pediatrics this earlier this week. And this is gonna air in a couple of weeks, so it'll be a couple of weeks old. It's receiving a lot of attention because they are suggesting for the first time ever that medication can be offered for kids as young as 12. So I'm gonna repeat that. Medication can be offered for kids as young as 12, and weight loss surgery can be offered for those as young as 13. And in terms of medication, that's a, you know and we're talking about injections, injections, and surgeries from kids. And to be abundantly clear, I am not against medication or surgery. Uh, I view them as medications and surgeries save lives every year. But when we're talking about disease, which is primarily driven by lifestyle in terms of nutrition and exercise, when that's the case, you start with lifestyle modifications. Maybe you start with sugar consumption maybe you start with ultra processed foods maybe you start with movement try those things see if they work and if they don't in some cases you need you need the surgery and medication so here i am you know the roundabout way i'm thinking about all of this and where we are today and and with two kids it hits home and i'm just thinking to myself what is so broken here
1: i mean when i saw the recommendations and the headlines I had a number of feelings. As a provider, I had feelings. As a parent, I had feelings. As a person, I had feelings. And I will start with saying, yes, systems are so very broken. Because of course, we want people to have access to nourishing food. Of course, we want people to have access to safe spaces where they can engage in intentional movement. However, we know in many places there are no playgrounds. Just like you said, in many places, people can't even, much less an organic tomato, get a piece of fresh produce or frozen produce that they can eat. And so I really think that this recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics is indicative of the broken systems because they would have to restructure and create spaces where people, A, interact very differently with food. People interact very differently with movement. They would have to break generational cycles of trauma. They would have to address the fact that these marginalized communities and communities at large, I have to say, I've traveled throughout the country, as you have, Jason. And there are many places where I go for a walk and I'm the only person on the sidewalk, like the only person. Like I'm going out and I'm looking for food and there are no grocery stores, but for miles. And this is in places that have great infrastructure as well as places that are quote, unquote, rural. And I think this is just me as a provider. I believe that these recommendations are in direct response to the fact that they cannot change these systems. Now, I wanna be clear. I totally disagree with the recommendations. Yes, I feel like medication and weight loss can be helpful, you know what I mean, in certain situations. However, I think, and I've always had a problem with this, and I taught, when I was teaching at NYU, we talked about um, their three stages to pediatric weight management, and none of the stages ever took systems into place or to consideration. And so if we're saying to people, take medication, just like you said, we're not talking about environment. We're not thinking about the whole person. We're not thinking about where can there be change. The other thing too that I have to say, and many of my colleagues who are providers agree with me, if we start by telling kids that A number one, you know, they're not good, because it is very hard to talk to a 12-year-old about weight loss surgery and medication without them conflating that to be something about their worth, right? That's just I mean, we I have kids that age. You know what I mean? They receive messaging that they inherently are not okay the way they are. I also think the other thing too that becomes complicated is that, and there's so much and there's so many levels, is that what we're seeing is that children who are younger, 12, 13, 14, are actually presenting with conditions that we used to see in adults, right? So we're seeing diabetes, we're seeing high cholesterol. Like, you know, back in the day, Jason, they only used to test cholesterol when kids were 10. That was when they first began to say, okay, we're going to do a finger stick and look at this child's lipids. Now, you know, it's happening much earlier. So we're seeing kids with diabetes. We're seeing kids with high cholesterol. We're seeing kids also with high blood pressure younger. I think those are some of the reasons why these recommendations are showing up. But again, this is not addressing the systems. And then there's also this moral hierarchy around, really centering, A, thinness, and, you know, saying that people who have thinness are, that's the ideal, and there's less of a discussion around, well, what does your metabolic health look like? The discussion should really be, from my perspective, kids who have diabetes and high blood pressure and, you know, hypertension have older bone age. They're aging faster, right? Like, I, so I think that there's, I think that, I mean, we could have...
0: Well, it- BMI is just so flawed. So like I did, I, I am, for example, I'm 48. I'm obsessed with, with increasing my lean muscle mass. The clock is ticking for me. I'm in a race to get some more muscle mass because it's harder. We've talked about this on the show. And so I did one of those tests where you do the, you know, your, your BMI. It's not perfect, but it's pretty close. So my body fat was quite good; it was nine percent. But like by BMI it was like twenty-five. Like it was just like if I look at the body fat, it's like you're 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 very lean. And then you look at the BMI, it's like oh, because I'm also six-seven.
1: Well, we have to throw BMI out.
0: I know. So like as we think about BMI as a measure of obesity, to your point, that is not the the, the proper metric. You know, you think about comorbidity. You know, much much better to pay attention to high blood pressure. Talk about diabetes, insulin, and so on. So, like, hear you loud and clear. BMI is a measure of obesity, and like, not the, the the best metric to say. But you know, if I come back to the you know, it, it is look, it it can these things can work. But but I think the this bigger issue is I think what we're both getting to is we're not really addressing the root cause. It's just here here's a band aid for the problem. We're still not teaching people about nutrition, we're not teaching them about exercise. And this is where like, it's institutions that are failing. Because these are kids here. It's one thing if we're talking about adults, but it's another thing, it's children. And children, who influences children? You know, it's their parents, it's their schools.
1: Right, say that again, Jason, it's the institutions, it's the structures, right? Just like you said, if we don't talk about structural change, then we'll continue to see kids with comorbidities much earlier. And children who have comorbidities earlier in life don't make it into adulthood in healthy ways.
0: And then, you know, I come back to this issue I raised before of, you know, there's two groups of people. There are the people... Largely the, you know, a lot of the marginalized communities where they don't have access, they don't have information, they don't have financial resources. Totally get it. And then you got this other very large bucket of people who check all three boxes. And you and I see this all the time in New York and Miami. They got everything, but they still do all the wrong things. And I'm thinking, in this age in 2023, when th- there's abundance here for this group of people, d- does our whole industry like just have a giant messaging problem? Like, I'm starting to ask those questions. Like, what are we getting so wrong? I look about all the scale and reach and we have an audience and you, and there's dozens of, there's so much, so much access, so much information. And these people have, access, but like, what, what's not getting through here?
1: I think people are tired. If you want to know the truth. What I see in my practice is my patients are overworked, exhausted, disconnected from the people in their lives, disconnected from kind of like the earth and land. We're hovering in a really different sphere. You know, when I was working on my cookbook and we were timing out recipes, there are recipes that take time. There are recipes that take time, like they take real time. Even I like kind of pooped out on some of them. I was like, oh, I'm on like, you know, hour seven of marination. But but I say that to say that if you go to many websites and you search, you know, dinner, the first thing that comes up is 15-minute meals, 30-minute meals, fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Of course, we all wanna get dinner on the table quickly. I do, right? I've got a family, I like to feed these people and not be standing in the kitchen for hours. However, when that becomes the norm, that means that the hamster wheel that people are in is just like in overdrive. And I do think that many times because we're so disconnected from all of the parts of ourselves and kind of just the act of going out and getting food. I mean, even how food comes into the home has shifted in the last five years. Um, And so I think that there's so much space for slowing down, prioritizing rest without guilt and shame, right? And then letting that trickle into these spaces where we're thinking about food, nutrition, and pleasurable movement. So many of my patients say to me, I don't have time to go to the gym. You know, it takes three hours. And I I said, well, okay, yes, if your gym is across town, it's going to take three hours. However," Is there a way or, you know, is there a walk that you could take in your area or is there a dance class? You know, like I have a neighbor who's from Trinidad and Tobago and she dances multiple times per week with a group of people. And then they do what she refers to as keeping parties. You would love this, Jason, where everybody cooks from home and they bring a dish to share and they dance and then they have the meal together. And to me, that kind of communal behavior is like extraordinary because it's not the norm. When in fact it could be.
0: You know, in thinking about our issues, and when I say our, I think of the, you know, the let's just call it the the health and wellness industrial complex that we all are part of, whether we like it or not. Um one of the things, you know, in this process of reflection and reading your book, which I love and what stood out to me. And I'm like, yeah, we, we all do that. Shifting the mindset from what should I cut to what should I add? Simple, but kind of a big one.
1: 100%. Um, I found that in working with people, we usually enter into, okay, I have whatever diagnosis has been given to me and I need to remove this thing to achieve quote unquote, an optimal outcome. And what I actually say is, okay, well, in real life, you have X amount of hours during the day. What can you add to your day to actually help you get where you want to go? And so in that kind of quest to add, I always focus on fruits, vegetables in there, you know, Whole and minimally processed form with limited added sugars, salts, and fats. That should like be my slogan, you know, my tag. But we really think about how do we get more of a those culturally relevant foods onto people's plates, especially in ways that they find delicious with the minimal added sugar, salts, and fats. And that, you know, I had a call with a patient yesterday. Um, we're working on their blood pressure. And the first thing they said to me was, oh, you know, I took everything out of what I was eating and the food's terribly boring. And I said to them, well, I'm not sure why, you know, you made that choice to make it really boring because we actually talked about infusing flavor because we're talking about sustainability. And they said, well, you know, I thought that it had to be boring so that I could get where I want. So I just took everything out. And I said to them in a really gentle and honest way, I said, you know, I want you to begin to think about and reflect that we've find a pattern of eating that works for you from now until perpetuity. Because the way that your body currently is, you're not going to ever be in a place where you can use salt with abandon. And I said, I know that that's a really hard thing to hear." but we have to start to think about what are the foods that you can put in that support you getting into a place where your blood sugar is, sorry your blood pressure is more level right rather than cutting out everything going on some extreme diet for 7 days pressure goes down and you're like this stinks and then you go back to you know dousing the plate with salt
0: so so you mentioned Accidentally, blood sugar. So I'm I'm going to go there because it's top of mind. You know, obviously diabetes, pre diabetes. I don't I don't recall the exact numbers, but they're horrifying. Uh, you don't want it <laughs> that way. And I know it's something you work with a lot of people suffering here. And I think about you know our our world and something that's very on trend now and great information and empowering the continuous glucose monitors. I'm curious your take for the general, population, I'm gonna put aside the people pre-diabetes, diabetes. diabetes. We'll go about a general general population looking to optimize. In your opinion, how helpful are the CGMs once you have a baseline understanding of, okay, I'm not pre-diabetic or diabetic and I'm not concerned about it? Well,
1: so Jason, this is such a hot topic
0: and- Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) So so would you believe I have patients and I know I'm putting that group aside, but I have patients who require a CGM, patients who require medication for, you know, their elevated blood sugars or for PCOS, and they're not actually able to get it. And so this is a really sensitive subject. So what do
0: you mean not able, like they can't, they're, they're, they can't afford it there, or they're shortage. not available? Shortage, there's, Wow. There's a
1: shortage. And so this is a really sensitive subject for me. Um, And I also have patients where the CGM is not covered by their insurance or they have to pay some ridiculous out-of-pocket number like $1,200 per month. Oh, yes. So it's a really sensitive subject for me because I work with groups of people who really need the access and it's very hard for them to get what they need to support their condition. Continuous glucose monitoring gives excellent readouts about where a person is in relation to, you know, their intake. Because of the work that I do, I don't know that I would say the general public should be using it. Because of the shortages that my patients are experiencing, because of the calls to insurance companies, you know, where we're fighting and advocating for them to have these CGMs sent when people are able to purchase out of pocket and insurance companies are like, you know, well, if they can pay, why can't you? Um, It's a really, really sensitive area for me.
0: That's insane, I had no idea there was a shortage. Yeah. Do you think, so So my take, I tried one a couple years ago, I did it for about 10 days that was interesting. You know i did all sorts of fun i had fun with it it's like okay let's uh you know do, do my normal routine and not much would deviate and then I'd say all right let's see how high we can get this sucker and you know we'll do the frozen mart the frozen margarita the french fries i'll have a donut like let's see you know let's just see what happened i had fun with it and there really weren't surprises other than the combination of dark chocolate and peanut butter was gold for me. So I'm like, all right, I can do my Justin's peanut butter cups and unreal and I'm, I'm good. Negligible blood sugar. I'm good there. You know, and everything else kind of made sense. You know, I, I, if I, you know, I love refried beans. They were fine unless I had too much. If I had too much, I got a spike, but like, okay, it kind of makes sense. And that was it. I was done with it. I thought it was interesting.
1: But that's what, so, here, you know, sorry to cut you off. Here's the thing. your Health and nutrition literacy, off the charts. This is fantastic information for people who, A, have not done the internal work of listening and feeling kind of what happens when they engage in eating in particular ways, because the body does tell us if we listen, right? Like if we can pause and say like, oh, what's for me, I know for a fact, when I eat certain things, I feel it in my back. I know that might sound wild, but I absolutely do. Um, so I think it's great, just as you said, for information purposes. The other thing that people can do through their insurance is, you know, when they go in for their annual fiscal to really have a real look at kind of what their A1C is. And that A1C will do that three-month retrospective look, and that's information that they can use.
0: So do you think we're just kind of, as we look at like... our our group of people in in, in our wellness industrial complex is just kind of silly and overkill in your opinion, if I'm reading between the lines?
1: So um, yes and no. This is in the gray, right? This is in the super nuance. I think part of what's happened is there's so much messaging around what we're meant to focus on that people are actually confused, right? I think that We say things like blueberries are a superfood, right? And then people hear, oh, blueberries are a superfood. I should eat blueberries all the time. When that's not actually what was said. What we are saying is there's tons of research on blueberries because blueberries are well-funded. And so we can see that blueberries actually have a positive impact on a person's vasculature. It's great if you have cardiovascular conditions. The challenge is because, and this is where I say when we talk about systems, it's not like someone sitting in a classroom saying to children at a young age, did you know that grapes are a berry? Did you know that grapes come in multiple shades? Did you know that the darker skin grapes have very similar health benefits to things like blueberries, blackberries, currants? They're kids who cannot identify a wide variety of fruits. So you become an adult, and you haven't learned that information, and what do you do? Dr. Google. You go online.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it.
1: Don't do it. And you pick up bits and pieces of information, but you haven't strengthened that uh, critical thought muscle around really deciphering and teasing out what's valuable information versus what's not. And it's hard to figure out, okay, well, how is this actually applicable to me, as a person, and is this meaningful?
0: You know, I have two thoughts. One is, you know, as you mentioned, children, children are sponges, and it is astonishing, astonishing, given the data we have in this latest statement from this academy. I'm trying to, I'm trying to forget the name of. Uh, it is astonishing that we aren't educating children on these things in terms of, you know, <laughs> this is a nutrient dense diet. You know, these are your. <laughs> These are vegetables. These are fruits. These are, it's just astonishing.
1: Imagine if, Jason, the food bill prioritized bringing scratch cooking into public school settings. Imagine if, imagine if there were a world where physical activity happened every single day and wasn't pushed out for math.
0: This is why we moved to Miami. (laughs) Because literally the school they go to, like they're outside every day. It's a priority physical activity. It was one of the big reasons why. And so on the, you know, you brought up blueberries, and as I think about, you know, a lot of reflection here. One of the things we as an industry could be doing better, and superfoods. You know, you nailed it. There's a there's a new study. There's a new superfood. Whether it was kale five or ten years ago, or blueberries, whatever it may be, and it gets a lot of press, gets a lot of attention, and there are these great benefits. And there's a herd mentality, and then especially now with, with the way the algorithms work, and then everyone's talking about it. And then maybe someone has a, a counterpoint of view that, you know, it's killing you and, and <laughs> this thing that is good, because um, that drives engagement. And I think we've landed in this place where outsiders looking in are, are saying, wait, what? It's this one thing over here? I got to do that. And that's the secret maybe. And maybe they try it and it doesn't work. Or maybe they don't like it. Or maybe they just look at us and say, you got, you're all silly. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. Yes. I think all of the above. I think people dive in head first on these trends and crazes, right? And I think, and this is, you know, controversial for some, but really what I see in my practice is that A, people value thinness above all and say they will go to any length to be thin. And I always say to people, like, I actually don't have any value or judgment on the size, shape, or composition of anybody's body. What I care about is what's happening on the inside. You can be as cute as you want on the outside, but I want to know what's going on on the inside.
0: Exactly. And look, you never want to be in a place I think you're at a disadvantage if you are grossly, ob- if you are obese, like you are more likely to have things wrong in the inside, but that's not always the case. And there are lots of people walking around who look good, whatever that means, but are falling apart in the inside. And to your point, we, we don't really know unless you go under the hood. And I think about this trend of a lot of trends and you know I will go, go to TikTok which I just took off my phone I can't do it uh <laughs> and you know I, I there's there's the chlorophyll people and then the celery juice people and then they're everywhere on TikTok and then I talk to people and they're like oh yeah well actually this is this is really weight loss like that's what they're really going after and then there's a whole other group over there and I and I just look at this and I say oh wow Again, if I'm an outsider looking in, they're saying these wellness people are crazy with their chlorophyll and their celery juice and all of this crap. And then there's someone who has no credentials and is with a zillion followers talking about this.
1: Yeah. And and it's problematic, right? So here's the thing that I always think is really funny. Like when I'm thinking from like a real kind of, you know, getting to the root functional whole body, um, kind of ancient food way pathway. And I want to be clear. I'm not telling people to run out and start eating dinosaurs.
0: We love We love dinosaurs in our family. We we are going through, there's a great museum here, the frost museum. They have a dinosaur display and it's totally manageable. It's not like going to the museum of natural history in New York. It's like manageable and they've got amazing dinosaurs. So we love dinosaurs. (laughs)
1: Um, but. You know, so you so like celery, right? And chlorophyll found naturally in like algae and plants. When consumed in moderation, actually, is fantastic. And when we're thinking, and I want I, people are going to be like, I can't believe she's saying this, but when we're thinking about detoxification pathways, listen, our body does detoxify, and when we feed it certain foods, we do move toxins through, and we want that to happen. Yes, I want people to have a bowel movement every single day. That's part of your detoxification process. Yes, I want you to sweat. Yes, I want you to urinate. Yes, I want things to move through your body. Celery, fantastic. Sea vegetables, fantastic. The challenge is this some is good, more is better. Every single day in excess is the best. That mentality doesn't work for anyone. If you eat salad all the time and that's all you eat, you're missing out on a whole bunch of nutrients. If you eat meat all the time and you eat nothing else, you're missing out on a bunch of nutrients. That's why we have a wide array of choices. We've got beans, we've got nuts, we've got seeds, we've got grains, ancient grains. Like, It's not as easy as right pinpointing one thing. And yeah, you're right. People are looking from the outside and they're like, ooh, that
0: wellness, industrial complex. It reminds me, you know, I was, and I guess I still am a big Grateful Dead fan. And there's the famous Bob Weir quote, too much of everything is just enough. When he was, when he was speaking to his life in the sixties and, and, and consumption of everything. And if you, you know, you kind of get the gist, but I think about what's wrong right now, it's, we're kind of approaching it. With that, if you think about what plays on social media, it's the extremes. It's too much of everything. It's like I'll use the Liver King guy as an example. You know, he's just jacked. He's on steroid. You know, it came out he's on steroids. For those who aren't familiar, it's kind of obvious to anyone. And and like all he does is eat raw meat all day and consume liver. And and like, look, there are a lot of people who are smart and say there are some benefits. You know, to, to to some of the things he's doing, but again, it's not some, it's all of it and all the time and extreme. And we don't do nuance, we don't, we don't do it these days.
1: We don't live in the gray. And imagine if we're in that hyper overdrive and we're unrested, you know, we're disconnected. Like, you know, sometimes I tell my patients, uh, and Jason, and I, you and I talked about this go put your feet in the grass. And I have some patients who will tell me, no. I will not do that. I will not take my shoes off and I will not put my feet in the grass. And like, we actually have a back and forth. And then I explained to them, no, actually, when you do that, honest to goodness, it has an impact on your nervous system. Like I'm really telling you, there's research. I'm not making it up. Imagine if that is a radical act, of course, the extreme of liver and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, eating testicles, which is what that man did, liver testicles, you know what I mean? Like, seems like, well, yeah, totally.
0: But it's, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot with regards to nutrition. And, and in our world where algorithms dominate in terms of determining what gets attention and, and eyeballs and what doesn't, we know. And there was uh, a study from the University of Pennsylvania done essentially on um uh, they the analyze the, the New York Times most emailed list. We talked about this. We had Scott Galloway on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. We'll look to in the show notes. And he wrote about this in his book. And essentially, the, the New York Times most emailed list is like very coveted. New York Times, obviously, one of the most trafficked and well-respected sites in the world. Um, and they analyze who was on the list, what, what types of articles were on the list. And they classified it by emotion. And it was like inspiration, awe, and then something else, and then then anger. Guess what won?
1: I bet you anger.
0: Anger. Anger won. So, and this is the New York Times. Now, a lot of people have mixed feelings about the New York Times these days, but like essentially anger won. Anger was the strongest emotion that predicted success in terms of eyeballs and page views and ultimately consumption, reaching more people. So what does that say about, I'm like, it makes sense.
1: It totally makes sense. It speaks to everything that you're saying, right? If, if we're no longer able to live in the gray, in the nuance, and it's only the black and white, the extreme do this, eat this, go here in this like overdrive mentality wins because it's also a source of anger.
0: Bringing it back to, to, to food again, I don't want to get too, too off track here. And so- you know, in our world, I think there most people will largely agree on eating whole foods. You know, every person I've had, I've had various people on here with various views on diet, so, some at opposite extremes. Uh, but everyone largely agrees eating whole foods, avoiding processed foods to some degree. Um, and I think there's another distinction right now that is interesting. I'm curious your take. Um, there's the processed foods versus the ultra processed foods. And do you think this is an important distinction or do you think it's us just creating another thing that's not necessary? And, and I'll use the example, like the way I think about this, where I, I can rationalize this like processed, we buy uh, lentil pasta and the only ingredient is lentil flour and that's it. And it's in a box, so it's processed, but it's just lentils. And then you've got Oreos, ultra processed. How do you think about, maybe Oreos isn't the best example because that's not a really healthy version of that, but how do you think, are we overdoing it with processed versus ultra processed? And what's your line around the whole foods versus processed and so on?
1: So I think number one, in order to feed everybody on this planet, we do need processed foods, right? Every food, just as you said, is processed in some way because we're not eating like raw chickens from a farm. Um, it's just not happening for people who eat animal proteins. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I think that better education needs to happen. Um, and I would say from kind of a top down around what it means to interact with processed foods. Um The challenge from my perspective is that there's this moral hierarchy assigned to those foods. And I think in the extremes that you were referring to, we have missed the nuance of talking about meals. You know, what's your first meal of the day? What's your second meal of the day? What does a snack look like for you? And I use that language because having an Oreo is not a meal. However, right, for many people who are so disconnected from the act of sitting down to eat, Oreos become the meal and sometimes the center of the pattern of eating, right? And so the conversation, in my opinion, is less about, you know, ultra processed versus minimally processed, and it's more about. What is at the center of a person's pattern of eating? How do we educate them around making choices based on the access that they have, right? That support their health outcomes. And I always say health outcomes just because we started with, we're in a sick country.
0: To me also, you, you can't have the conversation around ultra process versus process versus whole foods without also looking at to our early point, what's being added, what's taken away. And so where I think of this is fiber, as an example, we know that 95% of Americans are deficient in fiber, not getting, I think it's 38 grams of, for men a day and uh, or 38 for men, 25 for women. And I think that's like ages 19 to 50 or 51. So, so we're short there. And then what do we know about fiber? Like you're better off getting it from natural sources. And if you're eating all this processed food, you're not getting this thing that you need. Uh, so to me, that that needs to be part of the conversation.
1: I agree, one hundred percent. And I I also think, you know, because they're because health and nutrition literacy are at all time lows, the discussions become very binary, and it's easier to say things like "Don't eat Oreos, eat kale," right? And that is. It's, it, it's all linked, Jason, right? It's exactly what you're saying. It's the extremes. We're not, so what I, what I tell people is, I, it's not that I'm saying don't have an Oreo. What I'm saying is, what's the center of your pattern of eating? How do you make sure that the center of your pattern of eating is fiber-rich, phytonutrient-rich, polyphenol-rich, limited added sugars, fats, and salts, and culturally relevant? And so the language is really different right? It's not, I want you to sit down to a plate of rice and beans. It's how do I make sure that you're getting the nutrients that your body needs without all of the added sugar, fat, and salt, and that it's culturally relevant for you. And when we talk like that, then the person might have a plate of rice and beans, but they might also have something else, lentil pasta, right? With like fresh tomatoes and garlic and basil,
0: who knows? You mentioned Oreos and institutions and You'd know, be remiss not to ask you about this because this was definitely getting a lot of attention. in our wellness industrial complex world that I love, um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics trained thousands of dietitians. You're a dietitian. Came out, and this was written about in the Washington Post, like this everywhere. That this academy um, invested in, in in stocks and accepted donations from. Junk food, sugar, and soda makers, even as a, as a train, the dieticians who teach us how to eat between 2011 and 17, they look, took more than $4 million in donations. Uh, I realize that these things are complicated with regards to organizations who need funding. Um, however, this is not a good look. What's your – and it, it, it begs the question of was there really a church and state here or not? And did that bleed over – into what was being taught and recommended and so forth. I'll pause there. What's, what's your take as we talk about institutions?
1: So let's, I mean, point blank facts. Academy has a lot of work to do. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has a lot of work to do. Um, they have a lot of work to do in, you know, terms of what it is that dietitians are taught. They have a lot of work to do in terms of what it is that, you know, gets kind of the quote unquote "green light" to show up in textbooks. And as someone who taught nutrition and life cycle for, you know, a decade, um, I couldn't use my textbook solely, Jason. There was no way that I could use that textbook and show up and teach students in a way that would allow them to go out and be helpful practitioners and many semesters toward the end of my tenure, I actually began with, these recommendations are outdated. This information will not serve you. I'm teaching you what's in the book. However, I'm providing you supplementary material that you will not be tested on because the tests are old. And so I am super crystal clear in my saying that the academy has a lot of work to do. Now to the, you know, to the point of them investing, I think that there's a very big difference, right? In accepting money for scholarships, in accepting money for DEIB work, in accepting money to, you know, you know, create change versus investing and not having the conversation. Of course, institutions have to make money. But by not having the conversation, you're right. It's not a good look. If you're going to invest, if you're going to put your dollars into something and say that you stand behind this wholeheartedly and you want to make money off of that, and you are not willing to have that conversation publicly, it's problematic. It is problematic. The other thing that I will say is that there are... Large, you know, multinational companies that have various arms, right? Some in places that we're we're not going to go there, but you know, multiple arms um, that are engaged in innovation. This is where it becomes complex. And I'm not going to name these companies, but they are able to do work on sustainability. Biodegradable packaging. They're able to do work on reducing added sugars, fats, and salts in packaged goods while keeping the mouthfeel. They're able to get into areas because they can be in big box stores, bodegas, you know, dollar stores, that some of the smaller brands can't get into. So it's really complicated. You know what I mean? It, because... it totally,
0: it totally is. And I am I am of the belief that. You know, I, I am not anti-corporate America, and I think there are so many big companies out there that are trying to do the right thing. And to your point, parts of what they're doing are fantastic. And I, I won't any, is with regards to maybe to sustainability or DEI over here. And then over here, they're just completely failing. And, and no company, and you know, we talk about the technology we use, we, you know, we tend to ignore <laughs> uh, everything. No company is, is perfect. Um, and, and I think, with regards to, I think the thing about the institutions in our world, um, you know, specific to the economy, you know, I know I've been a, a downer for part of the episode, but th- this is why, you know, part of the why behind why I get up in the morning and what we do. And, you know, it's why we have a health coaching program, which you're part of, because if you don't like what the institution's doing, create your own and be the change you want to see and empower people because we're, we live in a space. I think about, maybe not the best example, but I'll use it. The yoga alliance for years with like yoga teacher training was like the institution and then sort of disappeared. And you have all these great yoga teachers around the world doing their own thing and then became less meaningful. And I think we're in the same position with food. Sometimes institutions get so big and cumbersome and they can't move and they can't adjust. And I understand why, because it takes time and resources and legal and so forth. And it's become slow and antiquated and outdated. And that brings new new people new brands new nonprofits who can who can move quicker and be better
1: yeah i mean i also think the thing with the academy is that it's what we're really talking about is transparency and conversation right i think that when we show up in health spaces right and we say that we're the leaders of how dietitians are going to interact with people and we know that people come from a multitude of backgrounds and people are intersectional in nature, right? Then you kind of have to be on the up and up if you're saying that you are that leader, right? And that was always, that's one reason why, A, I love the Mind, Body, Green, Health coaching program is because you really allow people to do that inward reflection, but also not feel bad about who they are right so i think it's two things reflecting inward but also not feeling shameful because there's so much misinformation disinformation and a lot of times at least my patients they tell me that they walk around in shame and so they want to be with coaches and providers and dietitians that are not going to re-traumatize them because they've been so traumatized by that health industrial complex
0: Mm -hmm. you mentioned shame i feel like we do that all the time not you and I, but like we, as it happens all the time. I'll give you a quick uh, anecdote, which is I find to be humorous. Colleen, and I find to be humorous. This was when she was Colleen was first pregnant with her with their daughter Ellie, and getting pregnant was all numerous miscarriages. Miscarriages, the whole thing. it was very brutal. But we're blessed; we have two two beautiful, healthy kids now. And so, when Colleen was first pregnant with Ellie, she was like still not we've still we waited till like the last minute to tell people because we've been through so much and Colleen had caught up with someone in our, in our industry and a friend and, and like looking at Colleen she's like you know you look bloated I think you have like I think you have SIBO <laughs> <laughs> and Colleen like Colleen was just so happy to be pregnant. We laughed about it. It's like, oh my God, it's like, here he is. Our friend who's like, you know, in a loving and affectionate way, but like diagnosing Colleen, like, oh, I think you're bloated me. I have SIBO. You got to look at that. It's like, no, I'm like six months pregnant here.
1: There's a baby in there. Yeah, but that's exactly what it is, right? You know, and man, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> it was a
0: happy ending and we laughed about it, but it happens all the time. And, and I know much of our, our conversation has been around, I think self-reflection in terms of what the industry, what, what we can do better. Cause if you look at those numbers at the highest level, in some degree we're failing and we're not succeeding. We think we're doing well and we think we're growing and helping people and we are, but apparently we're not good enough. Right.
1: And that's something that I think about a lot, you know, it's interesting, like, and I did a lot of work in my book, but also with other providers, um, that the recommendations that we make are particular to kind of, I'd say, Anglo-American ideals. And it's interesting because in terms of global minority, those recommendations are the minority, not the majority. People around the world, A, have much better health outcomes than we do. And they eat totally differently than we do. It's like we just got on the, you know, on the train of like plantains and cassava like yesterday when people around the world are like, we've been doing this forever. And we're like, it's a resistant starch. And they're like, yeah, we know we're fine. (laughs)
0: Let's go there. Because, you know, your book is titled Eating From Our Roots. And your global influence plays a significant role. And, 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 so much of the book is about finding your roots or identifying, we you know our roots, but but getting back to our roots and getting away from, you know, the hot trendy superfood of the moment and getting to your roots and enjoying different foods. We all know. And I think there's consensus here that diversity of food is good for the microbiome. We can all pretty much agree on that. And so can you talk a bit about that and, and the focus on our roots?
1: Absolutely. So, um, I think I alluded to this at the beginning of our time together. Um, I'm a strong believer of reacquainting yourself or oneself with the kitchen. And I really do think that, and I'm not saying you have to be in there the whole day, but I do think that some time has to be spent in the kitchen um, and that there needs to be some interaction with food preparation. Um, Many cultures around the globe spend time in the kitchen and many cultures around the globe have a really strong relationship to their farmers markets or markets in general now I know that that's not accessible for everyone and so what I say there is you know do your best within your financial ability and access to find food that you can actually touch with your hands and prepare in your kitchen. Something that I saw as I was researching for the book and talking with various chefs and also talking with family members because there is some of my family influence in the book is that these through lines were lots of flavor coming from herbs. We research them now and we're like phytonutrients, right? But they've been doing this for a long time. Um, Lots of flavor with spices. We're like polyphenols, you know, it's but they are these through lines, and I say this all the time, like, it's amazing. I have friends who are Finnish, Austrian, Swiss, German, they have salads, they season their salads with fresh herbs. That's not something that we tend to do in the US. Like, it's not like we're putting dill, you know, parsley, chives, that's like, you see that in a nicer restaurant quote. Book. And so in the book, what I'm really doing is just returning back to some of those basics. They're not extraordinary, right? Um, they're not uh, things that are a huge lift, right? Um, and they're inherent to the cultures that I'm highlighting in the book, Um It's an expansion of a person's palate. It's an expansion of how we think about what's healthy. And I'm clear, there are animal proteins in the book. However, none of them are the center of the plate. They're all on the side. There is added sugar, there's added fat, and there is some added salt. Added sugar and added salt, very mindful intention. The added fats are pretty particular in terms of what we're using. Why? Because I'm aware that it's 2023 and I live in the U.S., right? I live in this really kind of industrialized society. And so I am thinking, OK, people who are coming to this, we know the majority of people have a you know, non-communicable condition or like I have to be mindful of that. So we're careful with what we put into the dishes. The dishes take people around the globe. And I want them to travel. So as they expand their palate, they're expanding kind of their taste buds. They're expanding like what the norm is. You know, we're so accustomed to eating in kind of, you know, routinized ways. And this is like a little kind of come on, let's like jump out of that routine and let's put flavor at the forefront and your health will follow.
0: And in that process, in exploring foods around the globe, were, were there any that stood out to you or you said, wow, why aren't we eating this in the U.S.?
1: <laughs> Completely, so um, bear bear, which is this wonderful bear spice. Bear bear,
0: like a bear, yeah. bear bear. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's this spice that's used in Africa. It shows up in a lot of um, you know Ethiopian dishes. Um, it also, I mean, it actually, it's throughout the continent used but it has like a little bit of a heat on it um, and it's spicy. I characterize it as um, a round heat, so it's not too like jabbing, Uh, but I think that it can be incredible when you mix it in with vegetables. One of the things that I really focus on in the book is like seasoning your vegetables. Um, which is one of the most (laughs) under-consumed foods in this country, right? And I always say to people, like, if you season your vegetables, then it may be able to hold up to whatever animal protein you have on your plate. And eventually, maybe it can be the star on its own. Um, So that was one spice. Vaduvan curry, which is used typically in France, but it is kind of um, the result of colonization because, you know, it traveled around the globe and picked up different flavors. So it's not like the curry that shows up in the Caribbean or in parts of Asia. Um, It's a little bit sweeter in terms of like how it shows up. And I loved the usage of that. Um, Other things that jumped out at me were using like rice grits. Um, in place, yeah, which I've never done. And one of the contributing chefs, like, said, rice grits. And I was like, oh, okay, let's try this, right? Um, and then just also playing with how these flavors show up and what we incorporate into, you know, hot, creamy, um, bitter, right? So that's showing up on a plate. And it's interesting, like, a dish like that that we have there's not that much extra salt because i was careful to make sure that it was like low in sodium but full of flavor there's no added sugar in it so it is a little bit tart um and i use some fermented dairy so i know that we're getting some really interesting kind of uh microbes in there so like it is and that is a heritage dish right like And it's fascinating to me because we talk so much about prebiotics, probiotics. We talk about, you know, capsaicin, metabolism, and all of that's just naturally happening in this dish. And I didn't have to do much.
0: I love it. Well, I I, I love the book, Eating From Our Roots. Uh, It is beautiful. And the recipes look absolutely delicious and doable which is which is important.
1: Yes, that's the low lift part. That's there will be some things that you know folks may have to go online and you know order from Calusians in New York um and they'll sh- ship it to your doorstep. But you're right, Jason, it, the idea was creating dishes that can now become a part of someone's routine and that they can go back to and they can modify based on what they have in their kitchen, right? Um yeah, that was really what I was what I'm hoping the home cook will, you know, pull from this.
0: So what's your go-to when you're just stretched for time and you got to do something quick and you know everyone in your family is going to be relatively happy?
1: Oh my goodness. So, and I feel like this is such a New York dish. um, Rice, beans, avocado.
0: (laughs) The classic bodega dish. Literally,
1: Literally. I mean, we do like... Half of an avocado. I put some coconut aminos in the center. Um, brown, black, or red rice generally. And then black beans or pinto beans. And that's the like, go for it.
0: Call it a day. Add protein if you if you want. But that's it. actually is super easy. Um, it was funny. I had uh, Jeff Bland, the, the father of functional medicine, on the show a long time ago. And I remember asking like, If you could recommend one thing to just eat every day, no matter, you know, if if we had to generalize, what's one thing you'd recommend that everyone should just eat every day is like rice and beans. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there, so there. So in closing, given our discussion today, what what, what, what do you want to see less of in 2023? And what do you want to see more of?
1: I would like to see... Less shaming from our, you know industrial complex <laughs> um, because so many people come to me just feeling like they're inherently wrong and like their internal light has been snubbed out. And when we're talking about creating a pattern of eating that a they can replicate, supports their health, and feels good, I found that shame is kind of how they walk into that first interaction. And so I want to see less shaming. What do I want to see more of? Um, I want to see more flavor. I want to see more fiber. Um, And the flavor, I'm going to say, I want it to come from fresh herbs, dried herbs, spices, Um, and I want fiber in whatever culturally relevant form the individual enjoys.
0: I love it. I think the the one thing uh, to build off of our earlier conversation, I'll add, the thing I'm starting to see more of now, which I absolutely want to see less of because I think it's I can't stand it, I'm seeing, given what we discussed in the algorithms, how anger drives clicks and followers and so on, I'm seeing more and more influencers building their brand, not through providing utility and great information, although that's part of it. I'm seeing them attacking other influencers as they're, and they don't need to do it. And they don't like, th- there's already brand equity there and they're and they provided some great utility information. It's not necessary. or I'm seeing people who do who actually haven't done that either. And just trying to start from As every day. Let's try to c- call out someone or cancel someone because I disagree with what they're saying. Not like these people are essentially like disagreeing on their nutrition or exercise philosophy, right? And so, so to me, it's like we can disagree. I'm like, it, it like, look, d- disagreements in, in the context of health and wellness. Like, I think disagreement is important. It's vital, and 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 like, it's it, it's you should be open to other people's opinions, and that can encourage different perspectives and opportunities for growth. And like, it's important to have. So, like, I just fundamentally disagree with that approach and I just think it's
1: cosine cosine, 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 cosine. I was like so excited. no, but I agree with you. and I I think that the cancel call out, it it's hard, right? Yes, I want reckoning. Yes, I want conversation. You know what I mean? However, just the like the vitriol right now, there's some spaces that I don't even enter into.
0: Yeah, that. and look, like it's it's appropriate in certain circumstances we can go there. It's like absolutely this person needs to be canceled and wiped off, you know, the, the planet or what? Not wipe, you know, serve time, whatever it might be. But in the context of like, you know, you say potato, I say potato. Like, yeah,
1: I agree. No, I think we agree, and that and this is the thing. This is I feel like when and this is what you do so well is like you cultivate brave spaces around food. Right. And I think when we're talking and I do this in my practice, right, when we're talking about cultivating these brave spaces, people have to be able to show up as themselves and also make choices around their health and nutrition that support themselves. And so they need a space for that. Um, And brave spaces are not spaces that are inherently 100 percent of the time angry spaces,
0: (laughs) what we're all, us in the wellness industrial complex are looking to do is, you know, to make change, is to get outside the bubble and affect people's lives. And if I'm in the bubble looking inside, I'm like, these people are ridiculous. Look at them fight with each other. They're calling out each other about, you know, you know, eat this, not that. And they're like trying to cancel each other. They're a mess. I know.
1: And that's why everyone says, I want the gentle life right? They're like, I want to go the gentle road. They're like, I just want to sit down and have a meal that nourishes me and, you know, makes me feel good and supports my health.
0: 100% agree. Um, Maya, always a pleasure. Congratulations on the book. Um, Fantastic read, great recipes, relatively easy, and also beautiful, beautiful book.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you, Jason and Colleen, Um, and also the whole Mind, Body, Green family. You all have, I always say this, but it's true. You've been doing the work of really looking, examining before it was like cool to do, right?
0: (laughs) We're trying. We're trying. Thank you, Maya.
1: Appreciate that. Appreciate you. Always love being in conversation.
0: Well, the feeling is mutual. Thank you so much.